The text for the sermon this morning is Joel 2, the verses 12 through 14. Let's read those verses once again. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Thus far, our text. Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Joel has a certain timelessness to it. It's a book that has been used by the people of Israel and by God's church to speak to a number of different situations. It has this timeless quality to it, and that is because, in part, we don't know much about Joel. We don't know about where he lived. We don't know when he lived. We don't know even what specific sin he is addressing. He simply brings God's word to God's people as God's prophet. Now what we do know about the book of Joel is that it speaks to the people of Judah after they had just experienced a crippling locust infestation. Now if you turn back a page, you'll, you'll see that chapter 1 is all about this locust infestation. And the whole book is based and speaks out of that locust infestation. Now, we need to sort of wrap our minds around what this means. Because to us, locusts or grasshoppers are, at best, something cute. Something that we can collect and, and put in a jar. And at worst, they're, they're a nuisance. They're something that gets on our windshields. But if you lived in the Middle East, it would be a different picture. You would fear them. In fact, a number of years ago, 2004, West Africa was hit by a locust infestation and it was so extreme, so devastating, that it actually threatened the food supply of the entire region. Now what makes locusts devastating is that they move in swarms, thousands, millions of them. They, they swarm, they sweep over an area, they land on everything, and they eat everything. They cover the ground, the plants, the trees... You, you would see a stalk of grass and it would have three or four locusts on it, eating it. Now we're told in Joel 1 that this locust infestation was nothing like anything that had ever been seen before. It had lasted for years. Nothing was left. Even the animals were panting. They were suffering. Now what Joel does is he moves to chapter 2 is he refers to that disaster of the locusts and he uses it to warn the people 
of the coming day of the Lord, where the devastation and the suffering will be even greater. The curse of this locust infestation is only a forerunner of the coming tragedy at the hands of an incredible army, an invincible army. You see the way it's described in chapter 2. And what's even more incredible is that this invincible army is led by the Lord himself. The Lord is coming with his army, and all the nations tremble before it. They ask, who can endure it? But we must say that this is not something that only applies to Judah. It also applies to us. We live today in the face of coming judgment. We live in the midst of a world that is caught up in the fall. Caught up in the curse of the fall. The effects of the fall. We live in a fallen and sin-broken world. And we live in a world that stands in the face of coming judgment. We live with the effects of the fall. But, But God in His grace protects us from the full brunt of the effects of the fall. In His grace, He he blesses us in this life. As one person has put it, for Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, it is the closest they will come to heaven. And that's, that's where we live now. We live with great blessings. But at the same time, we realize that we live in a broken world where things are not the way they are supposed to be. This is a time where blessings and, and curses are, are together. But a time is coming where they will be separated and intensified. That time is coming. The day of the Lord. We live in the face of it. But hope is held out for the people of God. Joel holds out hope to them. That intensification of the curse, that does not need to impact you. There is a way of escape. Even now, the Lord says in our text, even now, return to me. That threat is there, but there's also hope. Judgment is coming But there is a way of escape. God says there is one place, one place that is safe. And that is with me. So he calls to us today, return to me. Come to me. Rest in me. Remain with me and in my grace. So let us hear the good news of our text this morning. The good news that we find in Joel 2, verses 12 through 14. And I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme. Hear the urgent call of the gospel. And we'll see three things. We'll see, first of all, the unexpected appeal, the repeated admonition, and finally, the grace-based motivation. So in the first place then, let's look at the the unexpected appeal that comes in the the urgent call of the gospel. Now now that appeal that comes in verse 12 of our text, 
is somewhat unexpected. It's even somewhat scandalous. It defies reason. It's even reckless. The Lord has no reason to to offer this appeal. The Lord here is somewhat like the father of the prodigal son. You remember the story of the prodigal son. The Lord is like the father of that prodigal son. And how he was scandalous as he, as he ran to meet his returning son. It was a reckless display of love. An unexpected display of love. He defied expectations. And all the social conventions of the day about what a man was supposed to do. And he ran to his son. And that's what we have in this appeal. Even now... The Lord says, return to me. The rebellious nations, they lie before the Lord. They lie before his army. And as he charges towards the nations, he directs his gaze to his people, his covenant people, and he says, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. It's an offer of peace from the attacking army. Even at this late hour, the Lord is offering His peace to His people. He's offering them safety. He makes His unexpected appeal. Even now, return to Me. Now, the word used here for return to Me means to reverse course and to return to the point of origin. To come back to the place you came from. It's the same word that we translate as repent. And it doesn't mean to simply stop and and go no farther. Like you would yell to a child who is ready to run across a busy street. It's not stop and don't go farther. No, it's stop, turn around and come back. And so what God is saying to his people is stop. Stop where you're going, turn around, come back to me. Come back back to a a time and a place where you knew me, where you walked with me, where you loved me with all your heart. That was a place that God's people once had. Israel was once in that place. But it fell so far. And as we go through the history of, of God's people, we see it again and again. Stories of how people abandon God. How they put a separation between them and God. And how they went their own way. Worshipping themselves, worshipping other gods. They repeated the sin of Adam and Eve again and again. They pledged their allegiance, allegiance to someone other than God. But God says to those people, return to me. Come back to what you once had. Leave all else and be with me. And in those words, we we see the gospel. We see what God has been doing all throughout history for his people. God shows his great love in this appeal. One person has called this 
love that God shows, a reckless love. It's a love that's almost scandalous. Think about it. His, his whole heart is for His people, even though their hearts are not for Him. Even now, with, with judgment bearing down on them, deserve judgment, He offers them peace. He offers them a reversal of the hostility. And we see this love at its greatest as we look at what God did in His Son. There God shows His, his reckless love, His unexpected love in what He did in His Son, in sending His Son, in moving His Son to die for us. God loved the world so much that He sent His only Son to suffer and to die for a people whose heart were not fully for the Lord. He died so that His people could be saved from coming judgment. Even while we were sinners, God sent His Son. The righteous one died for the unrighteous. The scandal of it all. The the love of the Lord breaks through all bounds and it crashes in on His people. God did not need to do this. It is completely unexpected. God had a million reasons not to do it. To leave us where we put ourselves. We chose for this reality. We chose for this, this falling, fallen world. But God makes His appeal, His offer of peace. He draws us back to Himself. He calls to us through the Gospel. He calls to us through His Son. And He even draws us to Himself through His Holy Spirit. That is our God. That is what He has done. That is His most unexpected appeal to us. And that message stands for us today. We're no different than Israel. No different than Judah. That call to repent. To return fully to God. That still stands for us today. We may not be involved in in idol worship, in the same way that Israel was, but do we fully direct ourselves to God? Or do we follow half-heartedly? Is our identity as Christians, our identity as those who follow Christ, is that simply part of our ethnic background, sort of our ethnic makeup, that's simply who we are? We identify ourselves as Christians because while our parents were, we come from a country that was largely Christian. So we simply identify ourselves as those who belong to God. But does it really impact our lives? Are our hearts fully for the Lord? And as we look at our lives, we may even realize that we are walking in a completely different direction from the Lord. 
We're being called back from that way of being. Or as we look at ourselves, we may realize that we're following half-heartedly. We sort of have our hand here with the Lord, and we have our hand here with a worldly way of being. With a selfish way of being. And the Lord calls us back from that way of being as well. He says, return to me with all your heart. He makes his unexpected appeal. And we don't deserve that appeal. We don't deserve that grace. This offer of peace. But it's there. Repent. Turn around. Come back to God. In fact, our whole life is to be characterized by that constant and continual turning around and coming to God. We call that conversion. We call that the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. That is what this life is. A dying of that nature that we have in Adam and a coming to life of the nature we have in Christ. Conversion from looking to ourselves to a looking to God. And that's the urgent call of the gospel that comes to us this morning. Turn to the Lord with all your heart. Grow in that conversion. Grow in that constant daily conversion. In the midst of all our struggles and our sins, in the midst of all the distractions and attractions of the world, this sinful world that pulls us away from God, in which clouds are knowing of God, in the midst of this reality of, of living in a fallen world, a fallen world that was made by our sin, that we did in Adam and Eve, in the face of, of the coming judgment because of that sin. As we live in this, this reality of, of having blessings and curses together. And as we live in a world where, where the curses, where the brokenness of this world is only a token of the curse and brokenness that will come in the end. In the face of all of that, God calls to us. He says, return to me. Come to me with all your heart. Now what the prophet Joel then does in verse 13 is he then speaks for the Lord. He repeats the admonition. He repeats that call. He calls them to look inward. And to truly return. He says there verse 13. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Now what Joel is saying to the people is. Look the unexpected appeal is there. It's been made to you. Turn around. Heed the call. Come back to the one you belong to. And don't just make a show of it. Do it. Don't simply tear your outer garments. No, tear your heart instead. Don't just go through the motions. Break down that sinful heart of yours that is not following God fully and destroy it. 
and return to God. And then what Joel does is, as he earnestly urges his readers to return, is he gets them to look at God. It's like he's saying, stop. Stop where you are. Now, now turn around and come back to the Lord. Look at the Lord. And that's really what he's doing in the second half of, of verse 13. What he's saying there is, he's saying, turn around, return to the Lord because of who he is. Look at him. Look at him. He is the Lord, your God. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. That's who your God is. Return to him because of who he is. Now, those words probably sound familiar to you. They are repeated throughout Scripture. And we read them earlier this morning. They were first spoken by the Lord in Exodus 34, verse 6, when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments. Moses asked the Lord to show him his glory. And then the Lord says these words as he passes by Moses. Now as we reflect on those words, we have to think about this question. If, if someone asked you to tell him or her about all about yourself in one sentence... What would you say? Because Exodus 34 verse 6 is God's answer. The name of the Lord is is wrapped up in God's self-description that he gives here in Exodus 34. God describes himself this way. Now Now what is remarkable about how the Lord describes himself here in our text, but also in Exodus 34, is that he describes himself with words that speak to his actions for us. That they are not traits or attributes that can stand on their own or that get their meaning in isolation from us. For instance, power, glory, wisdom, holiness, those are attributes of God that can stand on their own. But grace, compassion, being slow to anger, abounding in love, and relenting from sending calamity, well, those are words that only have meaning in relation. They have meaning when exercised towards someone else. So when the Lord reveals His glory to Moses, He speaks in a way that shows his relationship to Israel. He shows his relationship with his covenant people. He is in relation with his people. He loves his people. And so when Joel directs his readers to shift their gaze fully to the Lord, he calls them to see the Lord in that way, to see what Moses got to see. And each word is beautiful. And each word is about 
the good news of the Lord, the great I am. The Lord, he is gracious. He he does not count our sins against us as they should be. He loves us even when we don't love him. And he does not leave us in our wretched situation. He is slow to anger. He has patience with our weaknesses and with our shortcomings. And he is abounding in love. His covenant loving kindness reaches out to us and draws us to himself. And he is relenting from sending calamity. He doesn't punish us as we should be punished. He relents. He is a gracious and compassionate God. And that is who he was to Israel. And that is who he is to us. That is who he is in Christ. In Christ we see the full extent that God will go to. We see how far he will go to show his love for his people. How he will go so far to exercise his love for his people. In Christ we see the full revelation of God's grace, of his compassion, of his mercy, of his loving kindness. We see God's beauty, God's glory in Christ. That is our God. That is who we serve. And that is what our text is calling us to this morning. Look at your God. Stop. Turn around. Shift your gaze fully to the Lord. Gaze on His beauty. Take in who He is. Take in what He has done for you. And be moved more and more to conversion, to repenting, to returning to God. Return to God because of who He is and what He has done. Now Joel then speaks in verse 14 to the motivation for their action of returning to the Lord. And we're going to see that there's really a, a twofold grace-based motivation at work here. Now he begins by saying, who knows? Now this is not Joel being fatalistic. This is not Joel saying, let's just try this and see if it works. No. He is doing something that the nations around Israel would never have done. He's saying what those pagan religions would never say. He speaks in such a way that completely preserves God's freedom and God's sovereignty. Now, what would happen in other cultures, other other religions, is that they would oblige their gods to certain actions. That was how those religions worked. You appease the gods by, by doing a certain action, you say a certain formula, a certain word, and the gods have to do something a certain way. 
You earned what you received. That's what man-made religion is, is really all about. It's about how to gain control in an unpredictable world. And in a way, we, we still do this. We think that if we are really, really good, if we obey, if we act in love, then God will love us. He will treat us well. He will love us more and He will bless us. He must bless us. That's the deal. Sure, we say we don't believe that, but how often in our lives do we do that? We deal with the sinfulness in our lives and we think, well, if I just do a few more things, if I just focus more, God will love me more, He will bless me more. But that's the opposite of what our text says. No, Joel leaves it all to the Lord. He is falling down at the Lord's feet. He's calling God's people to fall down at the Lord's feet and say, we are sinners. We are not even worthy to be in your presence or to expect forgiveness. Even if we rip our hearts and not our clothes, and if we totally return to you, we cannot demand acceptance. He's like that prodigal son who returns to the father. And would be pleased simply if the father received him back as a servant. Now, this is what Joel calls God's people to do. Fall on God's grace. There is a grace-based motivation. Fall before God and realize that you rely on God's grace. You cannot earn it. It's all grace. We lie helpless before God. That That is our reality. There is nothing that we can do that would oblige Him to love us. We cannot hope in ourselves. We hope in Him. The gospel is that God loves us. But He doesn't love us because we loved Him first. He loved us first. And then Joel continues and he says, Who knows, he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Now as we look closely at what Joel is saying here, the remarkable thing is what Joel is hoping for. Because the hope for blessing is a hope that shows true repentance. Because read the last words of our text. Who knows, he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. The blessing hoped for is that the wheat, the barley, the grain and the vines that have been destroyed in chapter 1, that they will be restored, not so that the people will be able to eat and have their fill, but that proper worship of the Lord may be restored. Joel is essentially praying for Israel's daily bread. He's saying, may we be given what we need so that God may receive the worship He deserves. And that is the cry of a heart that is fully turned to God.
A heart that is gripped and softened by the Holy Spirit. That's what true repentance is. A turning to God, not so much out of fear of judgment. Because that would simply be self-interested worship. No, he's calling the people to a conversion, to a repentance that is a turning to God because you want to worship the Lord for who He is and what He has done. This is the cry of a heart that has truly turned to God and seen His glory, seen His beauty. This is the cry of a heart that has seen what God has done in Christ. It's a heart that says, our hearts are for you. We wish to live so that you may receive all the praise you deserve. We love you. Our hearts have been moved to you in love. May we receive what we need so that we may praise you more. This is a response that looks to God's grace, that falls on God's grace, knowing that it cannot earn God's love. But it is a response that grows out of God's grace. That is what is so magnificent about the extent of God's grace. He has graciously blessed us in Christ. He has given us so much more than we deserve. But He has also given us the grace by which we can actually respond to that love. He grips our hearts by His Holy Spirit. He directs our gaze to Him so that we may look on His beauty. He equips us to live for Him. Our lives are completely caught up in the grace of God. We are saved by His grace at two levels. Saved by His grace in Christ and saved by His grace in the Holy Spirit. And so hear the call this morning as the Holy Spirit calls to you. As the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. Hear the urgent call of the gospel. Hear Christ say, follow me even now. Leave all else. Look to me. See who I am. See what I have done. Follow me and have peace.